All right, back to Ezekiel 38. We can't review everything we've done in the first hour. Um, there's a lot of work that we did, but we have worked hard on Ezekiel 38, basically verses 1 through 3. We've done a lot of work. What we have discovered is uh, a couple of things. That if we take Ezekiel 37, and we say Ezekiel 37 describes the restoration, regeneration, um, of Israel, God dwelling in the midst of them, they're back in their land, that that's wonderful and great. And if we then say 38 and 39 goes in chronological order, it would fit then that this battle that's talked about in 38 and 39 would have to occur then at the end of the millennium because everything in 37 would seem to have to take place within a millennial reign. The only problem with that is 40 to the end of the book is all about a temple being built, right? Well, that temple being built at the end of the millennium makes no sense because Revelation 21 says there will be no temple. So therefore, that breaks the chronological order down. So what we could possibly argue is that 37 is in order, 38 and 39 is in order, but 40 to the end of the book is not in order. However, that's very convenient to say because it makes it fit our system. What we can say is that when we look up Gog and Magog, which is mentioned in Revelation or in uh, Ezekiel 38, which we've talked and talked about, trying to identify, identify Gog, the person, Magog, the land, with anything in the Old Testament is absolutely hopeless and useless because there is nothing in the Old Testament other than the name of some people that have no correlation to Ezekiel 38. However, Gog and Magog does appear in Revelation chapter 20, verse... Eight, all right, which is at the end of the millennium. All right, so therefore, then we at least have a textual argument for placing Ezekiel 38 and 39 at the end of that. I don't know why 40 through the rest of the book is not in order. I have no clue. Nobody knows what to do with the end of the book of Ezekiel because it makes no, I mean, it's just, we, we could spend all day on this. So what we concluded is this, is that Ezekiel names a lot of places, places, um, countries, nations that we can't really identify with anything. It, it's almost as if there's a new, a new ruler, a new confederacy of nations that are an enemy to Israel. It's new. It's new antagonism. It's a brand new thing. We don't know. What, we don't know where else to place it. And since we don't know where else to place it historically, then the only place to place it is in the future. So that's so. Since we can't identify all, a lot of that, Revelation does make it easy because it just says Satan will be released, and then nations (plural) there will be nations, and then Gog and Magog. So at least that makes it a little simple. I still wish it was in chronological order because it's not in chronological order. Any skeptic can mock us. I mean, it's easy for them to mock us. Well, any convenient that you, it's not in chronological order, but you can put it in any order that fits your. System and so I hate that, but it's it's not in order. But thirty seven, thirty eight, and thirty nine definitely seems to fit. So what we're going to do, since we cannot completely work everything out in Ezekiel thirty eight one through say three, trying to figure out those places and people that we, we can't really figure out the when, we cannot necessarily figure out the who, right? What we are, so what we're going to focus on in this hour is what actually happens in Ezekiel 38. 
All right, so before we do that, I'm going to read a couple of just quick summaries just to kind of help us out a little bit here, okay? First, here's a summary given to me by AI, all right? AI gave me this summary of Ezekiel 38. You ready? All right, Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a prophetic section of the book of Ezekiel that describes a future battle and God's intervention. Here is a summary of the contents. So AI places it where? Future. That was interesting. And they're going to give us a summary. So see, we don't need anything anymore. You just need AI, right? So here, this is what AI gave me. You ready? You ready to listen to how AI handles Ezekiel 38 and 39? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the prophet Ezekiel receives a message from God about a coming invasion against Israel. Gog, the leader of a coalition of nations, is mentioned as the antagonist. I think we can agree. Is Gog mentioned as a person? Yes. In fact, we got into a big discussion in the last hour. He is the chief prince. All right. Some say Prince of Rosh. What well, we got into a whole discussion about all this, but he's he's a leader. He's the leader of it seems a coalition of nations. Identifying all of these nations is not always simple, but it seems that's to be the case. These nations appear to be coming after Israel, and almost everyone seems to agree on that. All right, and it would make sense, especially if we put it in chronological order. Thirty-seven. What happened in thirty-seven? Remember the five, the five things? Restoration. Israel's unified. Israel's regenerated. They're in their land. God's dwelling in the midst of them. So you have Israel. They're, they're unified. They're, they're in a good time. And now, 38, 39, whoever this new antagonist is, is not happy about said situation. So it's coming after them, Right? The leader of this coalition is mentioned as the antagonist. These nations include, they they mention a number of nations. You ready? Here are the nations that they write down. You may want to write these nations down. You ready? Here are the ones that AI mentions. Magog, which we know that one. Meshach, which we know that one, right? Magog, Meshach. Tubal, which we mentioned that one. See if you can find the following. Are you ready? Everybody look at Ezekiel 38. You can skim it. Does anyone find anything related to Persia? Verse 5. How about Cush? Verse 5. How... Okay, Ethiopia. Okay, all right. They have put, P-U-T, or put. Okay, Libya, Gomer, okay, and there's one more. Tagarma. Everybody see Tagarma? Okay, they have that one mentioned. All right. So now we don't need. Now, again, you can spend all day trying to connect these nations to modern nations. But we already realize some of the ridiculous things people do. Right. Schofield tried to connect Meshach and Tubal to Moscow and Tobolsk. Right. Out of Russia. The only problem is there's no connection to do that other than they sound similar. That's not how you do Bible study. We don't, here's the good thing. In Revelation, we don't need to identify the nations because how are they described in Revelation 20? Well, Gog and Magog and nations, right? That's great, right? In some ways, I feel better about that. I don't have to have a perfect matchup, right? Now, here's what uh, AI goes on to say, right? 
Uh, the, the invasion is described as a massive gathering of armies from these nations who come against the land of Israel like a storm. Stop right there. Everyone just look through Ezekiel 38. Is it described like a storm? Because uh, AI doesn't care about giving us uh, scriptural references. <laughs> Do you see anything that would describe it like a storm? Well, we're going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just doing this for verse 9. What does it say? Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Look at that. Okay, there you go. All right, so it's going to come like a storm. Everybody got that? Good. They have evil intentions and seek to plunder and conquer Israel. However, God declares that he will intervene and defend his people. He confronts Gog and his armies and brings judgment upon them. God's wrath is described in vivid terms, with earthquakes, pestilence, torrential rain, hailstones unleashed upon the invaders. Right? The defeat of Gog and his allies is complete. Their weapons and resources are destroyed and their bodies are left on the mountains of Israel as food for birds and beasts. This serves as a display of God's power and sovereignty over the nations. The aftermath of the battle is described in detail. The people of Israel witness the destruction of their enemies and recognize the hand of God in their deliverance. They gather the weapons left behind by the invaders and burn them for fuel for seven years, symbolizing the removal of warfare and the establishment of lasting peace. Now, this is where this would get a little confusing and a little difficult to make this all fit, right? Because there's a temp- where do we want to place a lot of this? At the Revelation 20, at the end of the millennium. So, there's already been lasting peace, right? So now it's over. So now there's going to be true lasting peace? Okay, this, all right, maybe, maybe we don't have a problem. We'll see. Ezekiel emphasizes that the purpose of this event is to reveal God's holiness and to make his name known among the nations. It is also to demonstrate of his faithfulness to his covenant promises to Israel. Overall, this is what, uh, how AI summarizes it. Ezekiel 38 and 39 portrays a future invasion against Israel by a coalition of nations, followed by God's intervention and the defeat of the invaders. It highlights God's sovereignty, his protection of his people, and his desire to be glorified among the nations. Now, I want everyone to take a second, and if you're taking notes, at least write down this basic thing that AI gives us, because I think it's a good way of saying it. Overall, Ezekiel 38 and 39 portrays a future invasion against Israel by a coalition of nations. Right? Why are we going to say it's future? Why do you think AI says it's future? I don't think AI cares about 37. I think the reason is because we don't have any other place to see that this is happening in history. Right? So I think that's the reason. I, there's no other way to put it, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, so it's gonna, it portrays a future invasion against Israel by a coalition of nations followed by God's intervention and his defeat of the invaders. That's the main thing to get. It describes a future invasion... A coalition of nations, God intervenes and destroys them. That's the main thing to get. We don't have to get any further than that. All right? Everybody okay with that summary? Yes? Okay. 
Here's another summary. This comes from a human being. This comes from a commentary. Okay, if I, if I can find it. Okay, the AI is much better than the people. Okay, no, I'm joking. Okay, all right, here we go. Um, they say this. And this qu- commentary is quoting from another commentary. They say, here's a summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39. You ready? If interpreted literally, and there's the big if. If interpreted literally, this tells of a coming northern confederacy of nations about the Black and Caspian Seas with Persia and North Africa who will invade the promised land after Israel's restoration to it. So the human connects it to what? 37. The human connects it to 37. And, but what's the, what's the caveat? What's the, the condition? If it's interpreted literally. If it's interpreted literally, then guess what happens? Israel has to be back in the land. Then at some, And it seems to be, they have to be more than back into the land. If you look at 37. They got to be, God's got to be back in the midst of them. It's, it's got to be something, like that's why it's hard to put 38 and 39 anywhere else other than the end of the millennium. But some of this, we're going to see if it can fit the end of the millennium because some of the things AI described, I'm going to have a hard time making it work, but we're going to do our best, okay? So for the next 40 minutes, forever, how long we have, all we're going to focus on. So let's make it very clear. Nations are involved and there's a confederacy and Gog is the antagonist in the story, right? Everybody got that? Okay. Well, remember it. Now, Gog is the antagonist, right? Well, sometimes God is the antagonist. We can get into a whole thing, all right? All right? Okay. Everybody got that? All right. Now, what we're going to do, since we cannot necessarily identify these nations in any dogmatic, literal way, can we? Can we? we? I don't think we can. It's speculation and craziness. So what, and we can't really, we're having a hard time identifying. So the who is confusing. The when, the when is a little bit, we're not completely sure because the chronological order is messed up. So what we're going to do is focus on the what. What literally happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39? What we're going to do is just try not to base it on anything else other than what? The text. We're going to figure exactly what, because here's the benefit. If we can figure out exactly the what, then what can we do? We can clearly identify that it's never happened in the past. And if it's never happened in the past, then it has to be future, right? And that's how we do all biblical prophecy, right? There's a lot of biblical prophecies when it talked about the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. I mean, that happened, you, can, you don't even need a Bible. Just go to school and get a history book on the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. And it sounds like you're reading the Bible. But that's written by historians who've never read the Bible. And that's crazy when that kind of stuff happens. You're like, well, that was foretold right here. Now, they would try to argue it was written after the fact, but in many cases, they cannot prove that it was written after the fact, right? So is that, does that make sense? And get us all kind of in the same page, right? Are we, is that, that look good? All right, here we go. Let's go to Ezekiel 38. All we're going to focus on is the what, all right? What's what we're going to try to figure out? So, here we go. We have all the na- nations mentioned. All right? Now, go back to verse 4. We're going to start getting some of the, the, the what's. All right, here we go. Uh, and God is the one 
doing the action again. I will turn thee back. The thee is Gog. He's going to turn Gog back because he's the leader, right? He's the chief prince. He's the, he's the chief ruler here. He's going to turn back and he's going to put hooks in thy jaw and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So God's going to intervene and do what with them? He's going to put hooks into your jaws and bring these forth. Now, here's the question. All right? Well, he says, turn thee back, does he not? So this, from just an observational, we're not reading any commentaries, all right? So I'm going to throw out a lot of ideas that we may have to throw out later. It seems to describe, at least initially, that God is saying, come on, but at some point you're going to be turned back, right? Does everyone seem to agree that that's what it appears to sound like? Or does anyone have any reservation on that reading? Okay, I got a thumbs up. Thumbs up, and a lot of non-committal people. All right, okay. If people are non-committal because you're afraid to be wrong. It's okay to be wrong. If you're going to be a Bible student, you spend half of your life being wrong. Okay, right? That's, that's, if you're going to study theology, you spend half your life being wrong, okay? That, that, and nobody wants to admit that, but it's the way it works, okay? Because we're, we never know for sure some of these things, all right? So I'm going to turn thee back, and then he mentions Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. So basically what he's saying is, hey, you're coming with all of these, with these nations, with this confederacy, but who's ultimately going to be in charge? I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to take control of this situation. And so he describes it as doing what? It's like they're walking along, grabbing with a hook, turning them back. Now, initially, that makes it sound like he's just going to do what? Hey, go back home. Does that what it sound like initially? Okay, or subdue them, right? Okay, now, we'll see how this is going to play out. But I think initially, this is simply trying to say what to, to Gog? You may be the chief prince on earth, but I am the king, and you're going to do what you think you're going to do, but I'm going to intervene and I'm going to step in. Now, why would God intervene and step in? Well, we know, is it based on because Israel's good? No. <laughs> is it because Israel's keeping the law? No. It's because of a covenant. There we go, covenant. And a covenant based off of grace, grace, or God's character, right? However you would like to do so. All right. Right, right. So, that he's right there in the midst of them if we go with 30, uh, 37. Right, let's see what happens, all right? So what does he say to, in verse 7? Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out, out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Who is going to dwell safely? Everybody think he's referring to Israel? Does that seem to be a reference back to 37? That, hey, they're going to be brought back. They're going to be restored. They're going to be in the land. They're going to be safe. Does that, is that a good observation or has anybody got a problem with that observation? 
You only got a couple options, right? Is he referring to Gog's going to be all safe? I don't think so. Okay, so do we think that that's a reference to Israel's going to be? Okay, all right. I just want to make sure. This is observational. Remember, we're doing observational. Uh, We're not doing it like other churches. Okay, here we go. Verse 9. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. So, hey, Israel. So basically it's putting forth what? Israel's going to be where? Safe in the land. And then all of a sudden, what's going to happen? Gog and the confederacy of nations is going to do what? read Read it for yourself. The exact words. Verse 9, thou, speaking of Gog, you're going to come like a storm, like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. He's bringing everyone. They're like, let's get Israel. They want to take Israel down. Okay? Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. Now that is a very interesting verse in verse 10. Is it not? Does everybody find that very interesting? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, God's like, some thoughts are going to come into your mind. What thoughts are going to come into your mind? Like they're coming, right? They're, They're coming. Right, like, you can just put Israel, I mean, I don't know what Israel, I mean, we know what Israel looks like on the map today, right? It looks like, you know, smaller than Taylor County in Texas, right? Okay, it's small, right? There's not much there, but they're coming. They're coming, but thoughts are going to be put in their mind. Does it say anything about those thoughts? Evil thoughts. Everybody see that? And thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now, verse 11 is absolutely hard to even comprehend, not only from a historical perspective, but even from a future perspective. What does it seem to indicate about Israel that they're going to come up against? No walls, no gates. Israel's always had, they have walls now. Isn't there a wall now between? No, 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 no. Think, guys, think. What have, if, if we're putting this in chronological order, why would they need walls? Someone should raise their hand. Someone should raise their hand and go, remember Ezekiel 37? Okay, if Ezekiel 37 precedes this, that would make sense, right? God's in the midst of them. They don't need walls. They don't need gates. They dwell safely. Right? If, now, I, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to keep putting if, 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 if. I do understand 40 and 48 are not in chronological order, so that gives you every right to question the chronological order of 38, 39, and 37. My only argument textually is 38 mentions Gog and Magog, and that literally shows up in Revelation, where it shows up nowhere else, and it happens to show up at the end of the millennium. Right? So in the millennium, if Christ is ruling and reigning, does Israel need defenses? Right? It fits at least textually, right? Conceptually. 
by no means am I claiming to be an expert on this. I'm just trying to help you because right now I'm not, you know, how, you know how you become an expert on this? You typically read what everyone else has said, right? And I'm trying to avoid that system mentality. What I'm trying to get you to do is just look at what's actually said. We, now look, speaking of what's happening right now in Israel today, we're about six steps from World War III and that's not much of an exaggeration. China just sent six warships to the Mediterranean. We've sent two, okay? There's already discussion of, hey, we need to go ahead. If, if, if Hezbollah gets involved, we're going after Iran. Israel seems to already be committed to that. Well, then you would have, two, you'd have possibly two-front war from Gaza, from Hezbollah. I mean, the whole thing, I mean, I could sit there and just articulate and break it all down. The situation is literally out of control. So right now we're at least, and we've seen in the past where Israel is what? I mean, constantly Israel basically lives in a state of what? Surrounded by its enemies. So picturing Israel with people coming after them, that's not too far-fetched. History proves that. But to picture Israel sitting there, how did, what does the text say? Unwalled? Unwalled? At peace? Safely? And then I think it has another word. No gates, I think it says that. No gates, bars or gates. Well, we know there's a wall now, right? Between Gaza and Israel, right? Is there not a wall there or am I mistaken? Okay, well, yeah, there's, tu- there's an entire tunnel system to get things in, right? Okay, all right. So clearly this, what's it? Because it, has Jerusalem always had walls? When you even go back to Israel, uh, they're rebuilding after the Babylonian captivity. Don't build walls, right? Okay, we talk about the building of the walls. The walls. Why do those ancient cities always have walls? For protection. For protection, for protection, for protection. So this is clearly describing something that seems to be unique. Now, if you try to spiritualize this, this whole thing makes no sense, right? Oh, this is the enemies coming against the church and the church needs neither wall nor gate because God is its defender. And the churches will teach that while they have a security team in the church with guns. Okay, well, that... <laughs> well, it's not a literal army, it's a spiritual army. Oh, just stop, just stop, stop, stop. When you start spiritualizing this, it just becomes ridiculous, right? Now, I do understand. When you spiritualize it, what, do you, what can you do? You just throw a general idea. It's about the church, and the enemies are going to come against the church, and God will defend the church. That, you don't have to get into any specifics. When you do literal, then it becomes a little bit more difficult because now you have to get to more details. That's the only problem. So if you don't want to deal with it, you just say, oh, that's just the church, right? Okay, now, let's see what happened. What verse did we stop at? Stopped at 11, all right? So, all right, and I will say, I will go up to the land. So all of a sudden, this thought comes in their mind. Hey, hey, look at them over there. I'm going to go to them. They're at rest. They dwell safely, all the dwelling without walls and have neither bars nor gates. And he's going to go up to to do what? Take a spoil, take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle, goods, that dwell in the midst of the land. So he, he, he wants to come and get all of their stuff. Now, seemingly implying that at that time Israel's going to be prospering, right? 
Okay, all right. Then it starts naming a bunch of other places. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lines thereof, shall say unto thee, Are thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered the company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and take a great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, Thus say the Lord God, In that day, when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall thou not know it. Now, clearly we have a little bit. I know we haven't been given a win yet, but this gives us a little bit of a win, right? Like when it happens, not like winning something, but when it occurs. When is this going to occur? When they're dwelling safely in the land. Is Israel dwelling safely in the land today? No. Not not by any means. I mean, a thousand Hamas killed 1,200 people on October the 7th with that terrorist attack. 1,200 people killed. Uh, 210 people currently held hostage. Rockets still being launched in. And now with, who knows what's going to happen now. We don't even know what's going to happen, right? And then, and then of course, everybody is, yeah, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran. Who knows who else is going to get involved? The whole situation is crazy. Right? If Saudi Arabia, oh man, we, we could just go all day on all the different things that could happen. All right, so they're not in the land safely. So we have to get to the land safely. Once there, then Gog, whoever Gog is, whoever this antagonist is, all of a sudden is going to get a thought. Let's go get him! And then God steps in and start. What, what does he say here? Tell God, thus saith the Lord God, and that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, thou shalt not know it. What do you think, what do you think is being said in 14? How does, how does the NIV translate 14? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Seemingly implying what? Obviously you're going to take notice of it. Obviously you're going to know. Or, or does anyone read it differently? Somebody read it differently? A rhetorical question. Right? I think it's rhetorical. Anybody else think not? I think, I think it's not. You're going to take notice of it. I mean, obviously you're going to take notice of it. They're coming against him, right? Okay. All right, verse 15. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, and thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, and a mighty army. Now stop right here. Now this is, this is where things get a little confusing. All right. Now this is where the literal interpretation runs smack into a wall. Right? Because this would seem to describe a time when they come against them riding horses. Now, some who hold to a very literal interpretation will say, well, they didn't have the ability at that time to describe modern military equipment, so they just could use it at, you know, what would be the height of a military equipment at that time? A horse would be, so they just used that. I know that makes everyone like, yeah, that makes sense, but then you're not being that literal. Does that make sense? Others argue that because this is going to happen at the millennial reign, after the end of the millennial reign, that all the military equipment's not really going to be available. Now, that's a lot of wild speculation. 
here's what I will do. We're just doing an observational reading, right? So with observation, all we can say is, they're all going to come against Israel. But, and just say, by hor- on horses, that's fine. We, we don't have to figure it out, right? It's not our job to figure it out. What we do are looking for Gog and all of this coalition of nations are coming. God knows they're coming. How they're going to get there, according to the text, is by which means? Horse, all right? A great company and a mighty army. Clearly seeming to imply there's going to be a lot of them coming. Revelation 21, if we keep going, or Revelation 20, verse 8. We got to keep going back there because Gog and Magog is mentioned. What does it? How does it describe it? Go back to Revelation twenty-eight. I'm just going to make you. That's verse nine. Verse eight. Did you see that verse? Revelation twenty-eight. Everybody, look at it. How does it describe them? Everybody, look. I want everyone to read it for themselves. Don't 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 rely on me. The number is like the sand of a seashore. Does that sound like a lot? Is everybody okay with that? All right, that sounds the breath of the earth. Remember, uh, Ezekiel talked about coming from the four corners. So you see a, a great correlation. Are we not seeing it fit together? Right? Now, you see, I, I want to make sure you see what we've done. Listen, listen. Before we move further, what have I done? I've, I've thrown in all kinds of questions and doubts and made sure I told us not to look at it with the system, right? And now we're systematically working through the text. And now, just from an observational standpoint, we're finding a place to connect it. Are we not? Okay. And what have we not used? We've not used anyone's system. Now, guess what the good thing is? Five seconds from now, we may say, this doesn't work. And you know what? We can do that. You know why we can do that? We know, but we're not going to be bound by a system. And see, if you're bound by a system, you have to make it all fit the system. I'm so sick of that. I don't have to follow your system. I don't know who told me I had to follow a system. I don't. We're going to try to follow the text. Right? So let's see what happens. So far, does it sound good? All right, here we go. I mean, it doesn't sound good. It sounds horrible, but sounds good in the sense that we have at least a place to possibly connect it, right? Okay. And thou shall come up against my people of Israel. Stop right here. Everyone circle that. Verse 16. 16 is a key verse. Why is 16 a key verse? We have a textual proof that this is about an invasion upon Israel. We don't need someone's system. We don't need Schofield. We don't need a, uh, a prophetic study Bible. The text tells us it's against Israel. Everybody see that? Okay. I've been waiting a lot. I, I was waiting for someone when, we're, when we were doing observation. I thought someone would raise their hand and go, well, how do we know they're coming against Israel? Right? I was waiting for someone to ask that question because at this point, it would be a little kind of difficult to be dogmatic. Is this, do- is that makes it clear? Right. So now there's no debate, right? No debate, okay. Now, what could be the debate? If someone wanted to argue with me, what could they argue? Oh, that's not, that's not physical Israel. That's spiritual Israel, okay, right. And we've already talked about all the problems with that. Okay, all right. 
Here we go. Right now, what verses are we at? That's 16, right? Everybody got 16, right? I'm going to read it all again. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. Now, this seems to be implying. Now, I know the text does not say it, but this seems to imply who put the thought in Gog's head. God did. Because what is he going to use Gog for? Well, the text gives us. Well, the text says, I think, something different. Or does the NIV translate it that way? To sanctify. I'm going to use you to basically do what? I'm going to use God to set myself apart. And I think the NIV uses the word holiness. I'm going to show my holiness. I'm going to show, how is he going to show his holiness? By judgment. Judgment Judgment reveals God's holiness. Judgment reveals God's, right? So he's going to do that, all right? So, So God seems to be the one in charge here. Now, I know what we could ask. What was what, any good Bible student and anyone who has even a remotely a, a, any? I know within the church you're not allowed to do this, but in this church we're allowed to do this. What, should this verse bother you a little bit? Yeah, from a human's perspective, it should bother all of us. Why does God need to bring in armies of people that they're going to be killed and destroyed simply to prove His holiness? That's a messed up story. Can everyone agree with that? And in storytelling, we have the antagonist and the protagonist, right? The protagonist is always the the hero, the good guy, and the antagonist is the bad guy. Well, in a roundabout way, God is supposed to be the antagonist. But it seems odd that God is the protagonist because the protagonist seems to be in complete control here, and he's the one setting the whole thing up. So are you the protagonist when you set up an entire group of nations to come in to be totally wiped off the face of the earth to make yourself look good? That's usually the antagonist. But from the biblical storytelling, and when, and I'm no, I'm not allowed to say that. Oh, people listening online, please cover your ears because we're saying bad things. Because, because you're not allowed to say that in church, but I'm going to be saying that the story, just from a human perspective, it's hard to wrap my mind around. Because this is about to be total annihilation and destruction of human beings. When people die, Christians should be... Remember, what do we always claim we are? Pro-life. I don't know how pro-life sometimes we really are. But here, it's a horrible thing to wrap my mind around. God seems to be the one saying, hey, come on, come on. Come on, God, come on. Bring him on, come on. Come on, come on, let's go. Come on. Oh, a thought's just going to magically appear in your head. And you're going to come. Just come on. Hey, hey, you had to notice how good Israel's doing. Come on. Come on. It's all going to be fine. Just come on in. Because I'm going to use you for my purpose. I'm going to use you for my glory. Right? I wonder how Mr. Goodlett would do if he got a phone call from Wiley. And they're like, hey, uh, Eli. He, we got to talk about Eli. He, he, got, he started an entire fight at the school. Right? All these kids are hurt. The cafeteria is destroyed, probably had $50,000 of damage, and he, he orchestrated the whole thing. And if he said, hey, I did it to magnify myself. 
But do you think Mr. Good would be like, that's, that's good. Way to go. Way to go. Way to go. Way to go. Now, I understand Eli's not God. Right, we all know that, right? Okay, so, but it's still the story just from, a, from the perspective. We have to struggle with it. It's okay to struggle with it, all right? That's the one thing. If you're not struggling with the text, you're not reading the text. How some people read the text and go, oh, that just touched my heart. It's so beautiful. I'm like, you're out of your mind. Okay, are you, do you drink heavily as you read? Because I get bothered by some of this stuff. I mean, especially if it happens after the end of, whenever you read Revelation 20, does that not just confuse you to no end? So for a thousand years, Satan is bound. It's global peace, right? And then at the end of the thousand years, God's like, okay, let's have a war. Couldn't there be an easier way to solve the problem? Isn't it just an odd story? Just in, uh, because you would think at, the, at Revelation 19, what happens? Yeah, you guys have a hard time with Revelation 19. Everybody look at Revelation 19. Every time I mention Revelation 19, y'all look at me like you have no clue that it's in your Bible. This cloud opens, someone comes back on a horse, people are destroyed. Hey, I, okay, let's just go to Revelation 19. I don't want to uh, delay us, but We've got to get to a point where whenever I mention that chapter, you guys just know it. Okay, Okay. Revelation 19. Let's just look at it. All right, Revelation 19. Okay, all right. I'm just going to go, uh, I'm going to go to verse 11. I'm just going to jump in on verse 11. All right, everybody ready? Revelation 19, 11, everybody there? Tell me amen. I want to make sure everybody sees this, okay? Because next time I ask about Revelation 19, I want you guys to know exactly what happens here, okay? And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And it was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Does that sound familiar? I think so. All right. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon the white horse, clothed in fine linen, fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and it shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls of the, that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. This is bizarre and twisted. God basically calls all the birds... Come here because you're about to have a great supper. That great supper is the birds are about to eat human flesh. All right? Okay? And then what happens? That you may eat of the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. They're going to have a buffet to choose from. That is a horrible way to describe it, but there's no other way to describe it. 
And I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which, de- which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And they, and they that worshipped, these were, but were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and, it, and the fowls were filled with their flesh." Absolute, total death, destruction, and bloodshed. And then in Revelation 20, what happens? Okay, what happens in Revelation 20? You've got to know these chapters. Okay, the millennial reign. Okay, the millennial reign. And it goes from verse 1 to verse 6. What happens in 7? Satan is loose. Wait, 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 wait. Stop, 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 stop. Wait, why? For another war, a thousand years apart. Is that the most confusing narrative I have ever read in my entire life? This is like when you're watching a a movie and you're like, wait, what is happening? This would probably cause you, if they just flash to it, to ask, remember when you have narratives, sometimes they are in... chronological order and sometimes they are not right some people catch on to that some people don't ever catch on i can name a very famous movie that when you watch the entire movie and you get to the end you realize the entire movie is told in reverse you have to start from the last scene and watch it in reverse to make sense of the entire movie right that's brilliant storytelling right you subvert the expectations well here this kind of subverts the expectations when you finish 19 and 20 starts you're probably thinking Good. Well, first, there's no people left, but it's over. It's done. And then at the end of 20, you're like, but everyone just preaches this, and I don't know what, Christians are weird when it comes to the Bible. I've never understood how Christians read, Christians read the Bible. It can be the most horrifying, gruesome, messed up story in the history of mankind, and Christians just shrug their shoulders like, who cares? But if you were to find out that that book was in the library, you'd probably be yelling and screaming, wanting it banned from the library. But why do we read it as if it's no big... That's the most disturbing thing I've ever heard in my life. You have total annihilation and bloodshed. Then you get a thousand years that appears to be a peace. And then at the end, you're like, wait, what is going on? What is going on? Now, you would want in some ways to put some of this in the Revelation 19 passage but it doesn't seem to fit the Revelation 19 passage. Because we got to have the thousand years where Israel's what? Dwelling safely in the land with God. And where's God, where's Christ going to be in Revelation 20? In their midst. So see, that's where it, that's the only place it can fit. But yeah, we got to know, we got to know those two very distinct, seemingly situations, right? Now, what verse did we stop on? I'm in Revelation. Let's go back to Ezekiel 38. Okay, we're going to go back to 17. All right. Here we go. Verse 17. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophet of Israel, which I prophesied in those days, many years, that I would bring thee against them. Okay. Verse 17. Now we're going to have a mental total breakdown. 
I have no clue what's going on in verse 17. It is, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. At this point, you just want to quit being a pastor and retire. I don't know what's going on. What's the difficulty with verse 17? <laughs> yeah, supposedly there's prophecies. Okay. Um, hang on, I'm going to find, that was verse 17, right? Okay. Um, hang on, I'm going to try to find here where they, I, th- I think most just skip this. I think most, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going to even mention this. Uh, okay, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to read at least what they have to say here. Are ye, are, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets? This rhetorical question with the assumed answer of yes means that this attack and God's action and it was prophesied by previous appointed messengers in Israel. In any case, we must somehow link this chapter with Joel 3 and Zechariah 14, which also describes a great attack on Jerusalem, during which the Lord appears to overthrow the enemy. Notice that twice it is stated in Ezekiel 38, verse 17 and 39, 8, that former prophets foretold this invasion. They give some scriptures here. So let's do this. We're going to play a little game. What time is it? Okay. All right. Here we go. We, we don't have, we can't do a great job on this, but let's play a little game here, right? If Ezekiel, if God is telling Gog through Ezekiel or directly that, hey, this was prophesied in the past, then clearly we would have to find prophecies and prophets that existed before this time. Now, they just gave us some to look to. Are they before this time? So what do we need to do? Everyone grab a Bible dictionary, look up Ezekiel book, and let's get a date for the events of it. The timing of it. We need some kind of time, right? Everyone understand why we need time? Right, exactly. Right? We'll stop right with this. We won't go any further. Oh, we're just getting into the good parts of this, but that's okay. Now, now tonight, when I mention Revelation 19 and 20, I need y'all to be like able to just... Okay. Well, here, I'll just help you with this. Ezekiel prophesied during the first part of the Jews' Babylonian captivity, 593 to 571 B.C. So he prophesied somewhere between 593 and 571. We have to find prophecies that would be before that time. All right? Well, I, I didn't. That They did. Well, they, first they mentioned Psalm 2. They mentioned Psalm 2. Now, that's almost going to be impossible, right? Because the Psalms are a collection of, of things that were put together. I don't even know when. Uh, let's see here. Do we have a time for the put? Well, true, true. That would be before. If Psalm, hey, hey, that is true. If we if we put that during the Davidic time, then you're right. That would be before Ezekiel. 
So now the question is, everyone go to look at Psalm 2 real quick. Go look at Psalm 2 real quick. The problem is, is Psalm 2 really prophesying this? Okay. Um, well, see, that's when it was compiled. See, that's when it was compiled. That's not, see, that helps us none when it was compiled. Do what? Yeah, pretty near. Yeah. Uh, we're going to put it during that time. We're going to put it at that, that time. So that would put it before Ezekiel. I'm just saying they're not compiled to around 400 BC. So that, that's not helpful to us. Okay, but um, yeah. So we're going to put it before. But the question is, does Psalm 2 really tell us, is it connecting it to Ezekiel 38? Yeah, I'm just going to, I don't know if I can connect it. Can you? Why do the heathen rage? The people, uh, the king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This seems to be a battle against God and Christ. This seems to me sound more like Revelation 19 than it does Ezekiel 38. Let, their, uh, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords. He that sitteth in heaven and laugh shall have them in derision. Uh, then shall he speak upon them in his wrath. Uh, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Well, that actually may sound like uh, the end of Revelation 20 there, right? Okay. I will declare that uh, the decree the Lord has said unto thee, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron that shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Uh, when the wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I don't know if we can draw a direct correlation, but okay. We have Psalm 2. Let's go to the next one. All right, the next one, they have Isaiah. They have Isaiah 29. What's the date for Isaiah? All right, that comes before Ezekiel, does it not? Everyone with me? Does I, okay, Isaiah comes before Ezekiel. Okay, so then look at Isaiah 29, and let's see if it sounds something similar to this. Isaiah 29. All right. Isaiah 29. All right. We have a woe to someone. Everybody see Isaiah 29? Who is this woe to? Ariel. To Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. Everyone look up Ariel in a Bible dictionary, and like, what in the world is Ariel referring to? Let's see what we can find. Let's see what we can find. What is Ariel? Okay, name of a city. Does it identify anything about the city? Oh! 
Okay, so this may be uh, about Jerusalem. Okay. Now, Ezekiel 38 hasn't named Jerusalem specifically, but it's named Israel. And it says, I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel, and I will camp against thee around about, and will siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. Now, the only problem is, who seems to be the one doing this? God seems to be the one doing it, but we do believe in Ezekiel 38, God is the one directing Gog, right? Okay, so maybe, maybe it works. I don't know. And thou shall be brought down and shall speak out of the ground and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as one that hath a, fam- a familiar spirit. Out of the ground, thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. I'm going to have problems making this work, right? Because this sounds like something bad is going to happen to Jerusalem. That's not Ezekiel 38. Does that make sense? That's not Ezekiel 38. So I know, I know, they're, look, they're looking for, they're looking for anything. They're looking for anyone. They're, they're, they're reaching. They're trying to find some correlation, some connection. But all you got to do is read it. And sometimes you're like, this doesn't work. What were you going to say? Of, of uh, Isaiah 28 or 29.5. Okay, moreover, the multitudes of thy strangers shall be like small dust and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be a chaff that passeth away. Yea, shall be as the instant, instant suddenly. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her uh, munition, munition uh, and the distress her shall be a dream of a night vision. All right. Okay, well, then maybe it does. Do you think it works? Do you think it works? To me, it didn't sound like it worked because it sounded like something bad's going to happen to Jerusalem. What do you think? We, we, can, we can debate it. We can debate it. What do you think? Do you think it works? They're, they're looking for anything. You can see why they're looking for anything because it says that this was prophesied in the past, so everyone's looking for a prophecy. So they try to connect Psalm 2 now they try to connect Isaiah. What do you think? Do you think it works? Oh, okay. It doesn't give it as a reference. Okay, good. That's probably a good thing. Okay. What do you think? I, you're not being very committal here. I need commitment. I need commitment. Or I keep saying Isaiah 28, Isaiah 29. I apologize. What do you think? It doesn't. Right. Right. And it sounds like that they're going to be in complete safety. God's going to come against it and then God's going to step in. Right. So I don't think it works. I don't think it works. I, I can see why they're trying to pull it. Yeah, you, yeah, you, but, 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 how many times has it been nations come against Jerusalem? I mean, I've, I, we could probably lose count trying to figure out all the different times. Even, I mean, we can go all the way to 70 AD, right? And then we can jump up, you know, we can go to the Yom Kippur War. We can go to the different wars in modern history. So, all right, we'll have to stop there. We'll have to stop there. Here's what we know is that everything mentioned here has God coming against uh, Israel in a mighty powerful way 
And God is the one seemingly to be controlling it and desiring it. Now he's seemingly to imply that this was prophesied in the past. I just don't know if we have a record of the prophecy. And we're going to look everywhere and see if we can find it. But we will, we will try to go through there. All right? Everybody okay with that? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, we'll stop right there. Oh, there's so much more I wanted to do, but that's okay. We, can, we made pretty good progress. We got to which verse in Ezekiel 38? 17. Someone write down verse 17 so we know where we stopped. Well, we're almost done with the chapter. At this rate, we're going to be done, you know, tonight. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. All right. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, we thank you we're in a place where we can work on this and, and uh, try to figure this out as much as possible, Lord. We, we don't want to use systems. We just want to use your word. We are not afraid of looking at what the systems say but forgive us for ever placing a system above your word. Let us always exalt your word above our own system, our own opinions, our own thoughts, and our own desires. And Lord, forgive us when we fail to do that. Lord, we pray for Poland uh, this morning being in the hospital. We pray that uh, doctors will know what to do and that the medication will work and that she'll be able to come home soon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,